0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production
3: of iHeartRadio. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. I have so many things to talk about for this podcast. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to go in order of what we covered on the the eponymous drinks episode. Yeah. So I remember with such... Clarity, my first Shirley Temple. Mm -hmm. It was given to me on a plane. Mm -hmm. And because it was like this cool-looking beverage and I was on a plane and I felt super worldly, I think this might be where I fell in love with cocktails. Okay. (laughs) Like, I just associated it with like coolness and being like, you know, a globe trotter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was 9, <laughs> but in my head, I was the coolest 9-year-old ever for a minute. That was also a trip where I lost one of my favorite toys and like mm. we never found it and it was very troubling. Uh but the the Shirley Temple stayed with me forever. I don't think I have ever had one. Um because we were not a drinking family in any way mm-hmm. and so I like was never exposed to the idea I mean I I was exposed to the idea of a cocktail but I was like never in a place where cocktails were being served until I was an adult fascinating yeah you could have come to my locker in high school <laughs> <laughs> don't do that kids don't do that yeah so I like I didn't really I didn't really know it was even a like a drink with a recipe. I thought it was a thing people said to get something just give me something non-alcoholic and fruity. Like I didn't I didn't realize there was like a it was an actual oh yeah, yeah thing. There's clearly variation variations in the recipe, but like I didn't know there was even really that. Yeah, I feel like most people if you had to go with like this is the common one, mm-hmm. it's the grenadine and the lemon lime soda with the the maraschino cherry on top. Mm-hmm. The other variations are all interesting and yummy, but like maybe the ginger ale, but Mm -hmm. I'm, I always see it most of the time. If I get it, which I occasionally do, um, it's, it's the grenadine and the lemon lime. Mm -hmm. That's the basic, the others are variations. (laughs)
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, You can also, you know, throw a spirit in there and make it a whole other thing. Yep. Um, I do a spirited version of it where I do just a splash of grenadine and most of the syrup is actually a rose syrup. And it's very yummy and delicious. That sounds good. Listen, I love flower flavored drinks. Negronis.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so uh, Negronis are interesting. We didn't really talk about it in the episode, but they are not everyone's uh, cup of alcohol for sure (laughs) it's a very strong flavor yeah it's a very unique and strong flavor now i did recently and i've always had a hard time making friends with a negroni but i did recently have uh i was at a uh on vacation and i had a bartender who was doing like a cocktail flight and talking through some stuff and she made a very um good case where she was like you know most people the first time they take a sip of a negroni they do not like it But the idea is that you have that first sip, and you let it settle, and then you take your second sip, and that's where you start tasting all of the interesting notes of the actual beverage. Mm -hmm. And she's not wrong. It's still a little harsh for me, but I was able to drink it thinking about it that way. Yeah, I also, on that trip, because I had set up that tasting for me and several friends, and it was... In a Star Wars situation where the drinks are named not what they're really named in the real world. Sure. Saw several friends unknowingly drinking Negroni for the first time, and that was really fun for me. Did <laughs> you take pictures of their faces? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, okay. I was cackling so hard, which is terrible, possibly, but it was very funny to watch them go like, "Oh, I'll. go, oh, what is this? Holy Moses! Because <laughs> uh, it is. It's a lot." The description, uh, okay, I'm not questioning the idea that somebody could move from Italy to the United States and become a cowboy. Mm -hmm. Just the way the dialogue is delivered in that piece. I'm like, this does not feel real to me. This feels made up. Maybe. That opens up, though, many other questions of like, okay, but then how did this... Guy know about him? Because he did travel there, mm-hmm. right? So did he meet this person and rewrote how he spoke? Or we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Lots of question marks. <laughs> so many question marks. Um that's one of those things. I think I told you I fully expect people to to write in and be like, you got it all wrong, because people will argue about the origins of cocktails in general. It's a is a heated space. <laughs> Um so I tried to capture all of the key elements on the Negroni. If I didn't, my deepest apologies. I'm fascinated by the lawsuit about the bottled Negroni. Yeah. Like just that one. I mean, I think Campari's big thing. I didn't find any actual legal documents on how that played out. Uh, but I think their big thing was like, it's not a Negroni if Campari's not in it. So this is not a Negroni, first of all, but also that other liqueur companies were like, it's so terrible. This can't represent Italy. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. No, uh, that gave me a moment of delight. Yeah, I don't know how you would do a, I mean, you can bottle soda. I don't know. There's something about that combo that doesn't seem right to combine and bottle that it would keep its, its unique flavor. But I am no beverage chemistry expert in that regard. I've seen a lot more canned and bottled cocktails on the market more recently. Yes, for sure. Um, and I would say I uh, mixed results. Well, that one is... Um, here's some of the confusion for me on that one. If you're actually mixing it and then bottling it... Again, I don't know how this factory was run, but like... Mm-hmm. Vermouth is one of those things that like a lot of people keep at room temperature you're not supposed to you're supposed to refrigerate it once it's open because it will it will get skunky and weird and if you think you don't like vermouth it might be because you've been drinking it sitting on a after sitting on a, a bar back when it should have been in the fridge mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so part of me is like if you mixed that and then you bottled it and then does that is the vermouth at that point compromised and will that ruin the taste of the the final thing, Mm -hmm. and I don't know. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host,
3: do you want to hear about lots of litigation involving dr pepper mm-hmm. okay first of all i will say i have questions because all of the things that i read said that like alderton was like no i don't want any part of this manufacturing business but part of me is like did he just get pushed out because we never get any more about it from that hmm. and similarly morrison kind of vanishes from the equation um <laughs> And then his business partner takes over and i don't really know what the scoop is there that's not the litigation part i did not realize how many times dr pepper and coca-cola have been in hardcore lawsuits together like there was during i'm trying to remember what year it was hold on let me see if i can find it in my notes cuz i did keep it handy um there was an instance where Dr. Pepper was legally determined to be not a cola, which is important because Pepsi and Coke have each had clauses in their contract with bottling companies that are exclusivity clauses, like we will be the only cola you bottle and manufacture here. Mm Mm-hmm which meant that Dr. Pepper couldn't get into those markets without building a whole thing. But in being declared legally not a cola, they were able to be made in the same plants. So that's one thing, just fascinating. Um, the other thing is that um, Mr. Pibb... <laughs> so when it was first taken to market, Mr. Pibb was called Peppo. <laughs> okay. And Dr. Pepper sued and was like, come on, you're making a copy of our drink. Because Dr. Mm -hmm. Pepper has maintained a pretty significant um, market share because it's a unique tasting soda. In the brown sodas, it doesn't taste like the others. It has its own kind of quality to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they sued and then (laughs) Coca-Cola was like, okay. And then they named it Mr. Pibb. (laughs) Which, by the way, it doesn't exist anymore either. Now it is called... How does it not? um, It's called... Hold on, let me make sure I get this right. It still exists in a different flavor. It's like Pib. I want to say it's Pib Extreme, but I don't think it's that. It's like Pib Extra or something like that. Um, Yeah, it it hasn't been made as Mr. Pib for like 20 years, which I didn't Mm -hmm. realize until I was working on this. that, I, yeah, I didn't realize this either. Yeah. uh, The other thing that I found really interesting, and I debated over adding it into the episode and didn't, is all of the pretty unique and interesting approaches to advertising that Dr. Pepper has done over the years. Like, for a while, their bottles had the numbers 10, 2, and 4 on them. And the idea was there had been some studies done where people got tired or laggy at 2 30 yeah. and 4.30. And so they were like, if you drink a Dr. Pepper at these times, you won't get laggy. <laughs> yeah, I remember this. <laughs> um, It was pretty, that's a pretty great, fascinating way to do it. It was, um, their slogan was drink a bite to eat at 10, 2, and 4. And I'm like, hmm, let's just get sugared up. A weird messaging okay there was also a thing that they advertised i think several years in the winter to make hot dr pepper Ugh. <laughs> no I, thanks i want to read this advertisement to you <laughs> i don't know why it tickles me so it looks so jolly it has a snowman holding a, a clear mug of hot dr pepper and it says here's something truly different Dr. Pepper, which is great as an icy cold soft drink, is also delicious served steaming hot. And hot Dr. Pepper is so easy to prepare. Just heat Dr. Pepper or diet Dr. Pepper in a saucepan till it steams. Then pour over thin slices of lemon. Hot Dr. Pepper, that's a hot idea. (laughs) Okay, I am a weirdo that will drink soda without ice. I don't mind a warm soda if it hasn't been in the fridge. I'm very European this way. I'm not really. Uh, ho- actually heated up so Yes, yeah. sounds <laughs> awful. Having, just as an example, having bought a Dr. Pepper and had it in the car and left the car for a couple of hours in the summertime to go into the store or whatever and then come out and unthinkingly took a swig of that car hot Dr. Pepper. That sounds bad to me. I mean, my thing is, I guess here's my here's where I'm getting hung up. Part of why I love sodas, like many people, I love the bubbles. Like, that's that's part of the magic. It's why I always want uh, a soda in my hand, essentially, of some type. And that is going to get rid of all the bubbles, and then you just have hot sugar juice. Oh, uh, yeah. Which I guess you could make the argument, like, what do you think, like, warm punches are? Uh, but I'm also not super into those. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's where I'm like, no, th- thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't care for it. Um, and of course, now there are many, many flavors and many, many things, and they've done lots of stuff. But Hot Doctor Pepper really got my attention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be a great cover band of some sort. Hot Doctor Pepper. Not uh, for me. Not for me. Um. Anyway. So many beverages, so much beverage talk. I like (laughs) a lot of beverage history anyway, uh, but those ones were fun to discuss. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host,
3: This week, we talked about Mary Dyer and some of the other folks who were executed um, for being Quakers in colonial Massachusetts. Uh, I went down the biggest, biggest rabbit hole about exactly where executions were taking place. What did you find? Pretty much everything that is specifically about Mary Dyer and is specifically about the other Uh, especially the other two people who were executed before she was. They just say, the place of execution. And that is all it says. (laughs) Um, And, like, there are other people who were also executed around the same time in the 17th century, and some of those do more specifically say that, like, at that point, the place of execution was on Boston Neck. Boston Neck doesn't exist anymore, Because on one side of Boston Neck was the Back Bay, and on the other side of Boston Neck was another body of water. I don't remember. All of that is filled in now. So, like, there's no more narrow strip of land right there. But a lot of people who described their coming into Boston talked about crossing Boston Neck and coming to a wall and a gallows. And it was, like, outside of Boston on the other side of this wall on Boston Neck is where the the gallows was. There was a guy named Michael J. Canavan who who delivered a paper in 1911 in which he walked through um, where, where other executions had taken place. He walked through some of the vague things that people say said about Mary Dyer or other people. Like, there was somebody who was, who was like, uh, and then she was taken about a mile, and about a mile wouldn't have put her on Boston Common. It would have put her on Boston Neck there was uh, apparently a couple of decades later um quakers in massachusetts were trying to like enclose the burial the burial area where the people had been buried and to mark their graves which uh massachusetts didn't want to do um but they <laughs> they didn't really specifically say where that was like where the enclosure was trying to happen. Was it on Boston Common? Was it on Boston Neck? <laughs> and then the same person, somewhat later, talked about passing by the place where the Quakers had tried to put a little fence up, uh, but was on the way to Dorchester. And, and he definitely would have gone down Boston Neck on the way to Dorchester, but might also have gone by Boston Common, not clear. None of this was helpful. And so. After looking at this for just a huge amount of time, I was like, you know who might know? Jake from Hub History. Because Hub History is a podcast that has been around for like 270-something episodes. It is just about Boston history. Uh, Jake, and uh, I, I have forgotten the name of the uh, the woman who was also hosting at the time. She's moved on to other projects, but the, he had a, co- a co-host that. Like, they already did a Mary Dyer episode um and in that episode they described it as happening on um on Boston Neck but as we were going back and forth about it i was like i still don't know though like i really thought when i asked him this question on twitter on a saturday i thought the answer was either going to be oh yes here is a great source or it was going to be i actually don't know of one uh but instead he very graciously spent way more time than i expected sending me a whole bunch of links to a whole bunch of primary sources that to me just made it more confusing One of the things that I think happened, though, is that eventually hangings were definitely carried out on Boston Common and the same execution site on Boston Common was used for a while. So then when in the, like, later 18th and 19th century, people started writing history books about the history of Boston, they were used to the hangings being carried out on the Common. And so that was, like, when uh, this other piece of common land on Boston Neck came up and was also just called something like the Common Land, like their mind kind of filled in the blank of Boston, the place that we know of as a public park today. Um, so I, just, it just was, it was so so much t- so much time that I spent on that uh, <laughs> without really feeling like I had uh, come to a, an actual answer. But the, ba- the idea that, that it was definitely on Boston Common is, like, almost everywhere. Um, so, another thing is, as I was thinking about this whole Boston Common question, I was like, you know, it would be kind of ironic because with that statue in front of the State House. She's basically looking out at Boston Common. She would just be sort of in perpetuity looking at her execution and burial place. Oh, oh, oh! So number one, there's all the questions I just talked about. Number two, though, uh, just because of the layout of the park and the layout of the state house, she is not actually looking at the Boston, she's not actually looking at Boston Common. Uh, there's a building in the way. <laughs> what she's actually looking at is a Dunkin' Donuts. Oh um, heaven. It was just a whole different and very Massachusetts thing. America runs on Duncan Tracy. She's fine. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> um, if you don't know, there's a lot of Dunkin' Donuts in Massachusetts. Personally, I like the Mary Dyer statue better than the Anne Hutchinson one. And one of the reasons that the Mary Dyer statue has always caught my eye is that it it has a simplicity to it, which totally makes sense, because it is about a Quaker woman by a Quaker sculpture, and, like, simplicity is a value among Quakers. Um, and so she's uh, wearing very simple clothing. She's sitting on a bench that looks like maybe the bench in the meeting house that where she would have attended uh, services. She's uh, not actually looking at the Dunkin' Donuts. She's looking more downward. And it just... Uh, It's a statue that feels like it has a peaceful contemplativeness to it while also feeling determined, which I think just reflects a lot of things about her. The one of Anne Hutchinson, uh, there's Anne, she has her arm around a little girl, which is, I'm pretty sure, supposed to be her daughter, Susanna. Um, And so she's like, one arm is around the little girl. The other arm, she's holding a Bible to her breast and she's sort of looking heavenward and it's just a lot more ostentatious to me in the way that it kind of portrays everything and so uh, it's also harder to to get a look at from the sidewalk because in addition to it being farther away from the sidewalk there's some I don't know if it's construction or landscape work going on but there's a bunch of temporary fencing right now between the sidewalk and the statue so it's just not as easy to get a good look at unless you want to get on the other side of the fence, which I think you can do. (laughs) Maybe not all the time, but I think you can do. So anyway. Statue talk. Yeah. I kind of cracked up that we have done two shows about heresy right on each other's heels. Yeah. But, like, in ways that played out so drastically differently. Yeah, for sure. One is, like, a bunch of dudes kind of slap fighting um and this one is much graver. Yeah, uh I did not get into it in the episode, but I did read a whole paper about how this event influenced um sort of Quakers views of themselves and of their religion and also sort of the mythological mythologizing is a better word, the story that the United States tells about itself yeah um because the uh the colony like uh colonial Boston um you could argue had a lot more sustained part of like the growth of the United States as a nation than the colony at Plymouth the colony at Plymouth has its whole different issues right but the colony at Plymouth didn't publicly hang four people for being quakers. Right. So this paper kind of argued that maybe one of the reasons that um there is more of a focus on this not very accurate story of like the first thanksgiving and the uh the colony at plymouth and all that is um because then you don't have to talk about this these incidents of like religious persecution and hangings. Right. I mean, here's what I I, I love is not the right word, but here's what intrigues me about this whole story. Mm-hmm. This is such a good examination of the psychology of fear. Mm-hmm. Right. Because on the one hand, humans fear the unexpected and they fear change. And so, sure. right, there's that. And it's like, um, you know, you can't help but fear th- I can't help but think, and I'm sure many people feel the same, as you hear it, like, here's a woman who lost her child and probably, you know, was grieving that and somehow in the midst of that pain also became an outcast Mm -hmm. because people were so scared that somehow the bad thing that happened to her meant that God was angry and they were afraid that a bad thing might happen to them if they did not cast her out. And it's like, it's interesting in the way that like groupthink in situations like that can cause fear to supersede any kind of compassion. Sure, And I'm always very intrigued by these, these kinds of things where it's like, that is a woman who just lost a child. Yeah. She's got her own stuff going on. You don't need to be like this. But they did because they were terrified. Yeah. Which is weird. Um, There are a number of people who have drawn conclusions about, uh, like, Mary Dyer's baby and, like, how that baby would have been diagnosed today. Um, And the same for Anne Hutchinson's mis- miscarriage. And I didn't put any of that in there because I'm like, we are talking about Somebody who exhumed a baby that had been buried months before. Yeah. And then interpreted what they saw through this lens of like monstrousness. I was, I'm like, I don't, that's not a lot of scientific rigor being applied there. It's very thin evidence to try to make a a diagnosis out of. So I, I did not feel comfortable, even though there are a lot of people that have made that. I was like, I don't feel comfortable really putting that in there. I I had to go back into Boston for a totally different reason, for a different episode. Um, and while I was there, uh, I, as I was walking in the direction I needed to walk, I walked past the Mary Dyer statue and I looped back and I was like, is she really looking at the Dunkin' Donuts? She is. And then I was like, let me go look at the Anne Hutchinson statue, even though that's not the way that I'm walking, and, like, walked whole way and was like, that is a lot farther back from the road than I, like, it's odd how that stretch of, like, park and land and statehouse is kind of laid out in a way that's definitely not square. Right? <laughs> so you end up with, like, one side of the statehouse way farther back from the road than the other. So anyway, uh, if you go walking around Boston, we got a lot of statues. <laughs> and they all have stories. They do. They do. Uh, on that same walk, there were a couple other statues that I made note of. I was like, who is this person? I got to look them up because I'm intrigued by this statue.
1: <laughs>
3: so... Happy Friday again. If you've got great stuff going on this weekend, I hope it's great. If your weekend is not looking as great, you know, I hope you're able to take a minute for yourself. I've been trying very hard to carve out some moments for my own self every day, even if something's going on that's trying to prevent that. Uh, We'll be back with a Saturday Classic tomorrow. We will be back Monday with a brand new episode.